This episode of Industry Focus Financials is brought to you by Casper, an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price, because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com fool and enter promo code fool. That's F-O-O-L. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You're listening to the Financials Edition taped today on Monday, March 6, 2017. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on Skype is John Maxfield, banking specialist. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Gabby? Very good. I hear it was your birthday on March 3rd. Happy yeah. birthday! <laughs> yeah, thanks. I was telling you before the show, I, like I'm not one of those people who like thinks I'm old because I don't. I'm like I'm 37. I'll just full disclosure. But like it is, de- I I have found it to be true that the older you get, and particularly as you like approach 40, definitely like birthdays are less and less a thing to celebrate. Yeah. So I'm actually I'm also a March birthday person. My birthday is on March 17th. Um, which is St. Patrick's Day. Fun fact for a lot of people out there who don't realize this, Saints' Days don't move around because they're Catholic feast days. So St. Patrick's Day is the same day every year. A lot of people think it's like the third Thursday of the month or something, but no, it's March 17th every year. Just like St. Valentine's Day is February 14th every year. You're welcome, huh. everyone who's ever yeah. had a question about that. Yeah, um, mark that off on trivia next time. <laughs> um, but no, I'm, I'm turning 28 in like two weeks, so that's... Uh, Two years. Uh, that's your a, spring chicken, Gabby. Two yeah. years closer to, to thirty. <laughs> you have your whole life ahead of you. <laughs> oh man. Um, speaking of someone who has had a very long life, Warren Buffett. Um, exciting news from Omaha this week. He he uh, released his long-anticipated investor letter that he does every year. Um, and that is it's something that is, I don't know how to describe it. It's like. It's like the great American novel of American investing that gets written every year. Um, and if you look back at past ones, like it's just it's just this beautiful collection of investing wisdom from one of the best investors ever. And I know if not the best, or if not ever. the best investor ever. I know you were really excited about this, Maxfield. I, I was, and I, you know, I think it's that's a great way that you framed it because it's like it's not just like maybe the most valuable document that's ever been written about investing, which I think that it is. Um, But it's a living document. So he's like adding to it each year. So we can not only see what he says each year, but we can kind of like see how his thought process evolves. And it's just as as for an individual investor, it's just, you just couldn't get a more valuable um, you just couldn't have a more valuable document to study than, than his letters. That's so true. For all you millennials out there, it's like Harry Potter for investing, except it doesn't end. <laughs> <laughs> At least I make myself laugh. And you, which is good. <laughs> um, so one of the things that, the, that characterizes this letter is that the first page always has all the returns that Berkshire has had since 1965, when Buffett took over Berkshire. Um, do you want to expound a little bit on what's going on there? Yeah, let, let me start out with a slightly different thing, though. So I think one of the things that somebody like me, when the letter comes out, I read it immediately. Other people in my, in, you know, in our industry, the media industry, do the same thing. And then what you're doing is you're like looking for like those, you know, pithy quotes or like kind of like, you know, what he has to say about the American economy and stuff like that. But, you know, I think one of the things that's really important is not only that when you read that that investors should read his letter, which I, I, I honestly think that investors sh- should always read his letters. Um, 
but it's also about how you read them. And it's, you, so you don't want to just fall into that habit of just going through and kind of superficially picking out, you know, the, the favorite pithy quote that he had to say or the five awesomest quotes he had to say or, you know, what he had to say about like politics, you know what I mean? Or what he had to say about the American economy. You really want to sit down and switch your kind of thought process from that kind of instinctual system one is kind of how they refer to it in behavioral finance um, over into that, that more like um, calculated, slower thought process where you're actually thinking and analyzing it. And so when, when, you know, when you think about Warren Buffett, I think, it's, I think it's really important that while we can all sit around and say that, look, this guy is the most successful investor. I, I, I mean, as far as I know, and I've read quite a bit about investing, like he's the most successful investor over such a long stretch of time of, uh, of all time. Um, but that doesn't mean that you should suspend your critical thought process, even when reading Warren Buffett's letters. Not at all. Um, I think one of the best things that I picked up from college um, and that helped me get successfully through grad school was marking up every single thing that I read. So um, I know this must drive librarians crazy, and I'm so sorry about this. I don't do this. I only do this to books that I actually own, but I take a pen or a pencil and I mark up every page. So every time someone says something interesting or something that I want to fact check later, I circle it. I have my own little set of symbols and notations for what I think is actually going on. And at the end of each chapter, I like to give a little summary of the most important points. And at the end of the book, I kind of go back and like write down what I thought the best things were or what, what were things I didn't disagree with and just like think on them some more. Yeah. You know, it's funny when you're explaining that, I, I, there's a lot of people who talk about the, the process of reading and a lot of really good readers, they apply a very, very similar process to that. Um, but so let me, let me now, now let me get to the answer to your first question, Gabby. Okay. So on the very first page of Warren Buffett's letter, it compares the performance of Berkshire Hathaway since 1965, which is the year that he actually took over the company, until today. And it looks at the performance of Berkshire Hathaway and both the growth in book value per share, the growth in its market value of its actual shares on the, on the exchanges, and then it compares that to the S&P 500. And what I love about this first page is like the law of compounding returns is like one of those things that is so difficult to get your brain around because it's just it's just a difficult thing to define. I mean, Albert Einstein is like a pretty smart guy. I think we can all agree, right? <laughs> um, right, Gabby? Do you, do you agree Albert Einstein is smart? Sure. You know, he's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, but he calls it the eighth wonder of the world. Okay. So if Albert Einstein is saying that, this is a difficult concept to understand. But this, the first page on Warren Buffett's letter, it really drives home, even if you can't understand it, how incredibly powerful compound returns are. And so let me put this in perspective, okay? So over that, I think it's a 52-year stretch, Buffett has averaged uh, a 20.8% annualized gain on its on Berkshire Hathaway stock. Okay, so now over that entire, so that's an annualized gain. Okay, now over that entire period, he's earned nearly two million percentage return on his original investors' money. And so what that translates into is a $10,000 investment in Berkshire Hathaway in 1965, which if you factor inflation in the equation, that's basically enough to buy a BMW 5 Series, like a nice car, but like nothing like ridiculously fancy. That transforms that amount of money into $88 million, i.e. generational wealth for most families. That's crazy. So, I mean, it's just, isn't that crazy? Yes. <laughs> So it's just like it's just it's just such a good example. And then the other thing that like really drives this point home about how about the power of compounding returns is that if you compare, let's say, oh, and to put that in perspective, 
So while Buffett has returned 2 million percent over that time period, the S&P 500 has returned 12,700 percent. That's also so he's done, very impressive. <laughs> that's also impressive, but it's like, <laughs> It's like a rounding error when yeah. you look at it compared to Buffett's returns. So then, so then, so that at that second point is that even really small differences in percentages over a, an extended stretch of time, when the when they those returns compound, can result in a huge difference. And so let me give you the example from that first page. So the per share change in Buffett in Berkshire's book value per share is an annualized gain of 19%. But the same, like I was saying, the market value in its, its actual shares is 20.8%. So 1.8 percentage point difference. Well, over that stretch of time period, that transforms that 2 million percent return uh, all the way down to 884,000 percent return. So just on a, on a yearly basis, even though it's less than a 2% difference, over the stretch of, of that 52-year time period, you're looking at 1.1 million percentage difference. So, so the point just being is this, that like, Compounding returns is something you want to grasp onto as an investor and take advantage of to the greatest extent you can. Yeah, definitely. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit more about the returns because one of the things you can see is that there's something going on with Berkshire's returns, right? Like they're, they're kind of going down over time. You know, it, it looks like it's tracking the S and P 500, um, and Buffett explains why in the, in the shareholder letter. Right, and so that 19% return on their book value, annualized return on the book value, what's interesting is that that's over that entire 52-year stretch. But if you actually break it down and chart out its Berkshire's returns on an annualized basis, what you see is that they start super-duper high in the early 1970s, but then they, like, way over the S&P 500, like 20 percentage points over the S&P 500. But then they come down gradually, 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 gradually come down. And then, if, so if you look at, like, kind of a five-year average difference between the S&P 500 and Berkshire's returns, you know, like, the, the premium Berkshire's returns over the S&P 500, it's actually dipped into negative territory in three out of the last five years, if you look at a five-year difference. So the question is, like, what is going on here? Is, like, Buffett, like, lost his like sense of touch, his golden touch, you know what I mean? And the answer is that no, it's actually, that's not what it has to do with. The, the, the answer is that Berkshire has become, because of Warren Buffett's success and because of his prudent capital allocation, it has become such an enormous company that in order for him to continue generating those just ridiculous returns that he did 40 years ago, he's got to like earn like $60 billion. Yeah. Let me give you the exact math. So uh, he's got to earn $54 billion each year at Berkshire Hathaway in order to maintain that 19% annualized growth rate. So it's just a, it, 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 the returns are going down dramatically, but it's not because Ber Buffett doesn't know what he's doing anymore by any stretch of imagination. It's just because Ber Berkshire's gotten to be so enormous. Yeah, so think about it this way. the um, Think about when you are first learning how to do a sport. Um, say it is soccer, which I don't really know that much about, but um, just minimal uh, increases in your knowledge make you a much better player. Once you become the best player in the world, it takes a lot more knowledge to increase your 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 uh, performance as a player. Um, it's the same thing with the company, except with returns. So if you're a really small company, minor um, acquisitions or purchases or decisions can have a huge impact on how much return you get. The bigger you get, the bigger the changes you have to make to 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 uh, increase your performance. It's the same thing, um, which is, I think, something that a lot of people don't realize. They're like, you're bigger, so you should be able to make more money, but it actually makes it harder to outperform what you did in the past. Sure, you're making more money like as a whole, but 
it's it, as a percentage wise, it's not as much. Yeah. And you know what? When, when you see that chart, and I, I wrote an article about this, and where you see the line comparing Berkshire's returns to, to the S&P 500, and when you see that it's come down, it's now basically either a little bit above the S&P 500 on, on, on a kind of a five-year average basis, a little bit below that or right around it. You know what this has led me to believe hmm. is that, look, Berkshire, at some point, it's going to get so big that it's just not gonna be able to do, it's, it's not gonna be able to find enough places to invest its capital. And one of the things that Berkshire has always done because Buffett is such a good capital allocator is that it's retained all of its earnings because his thought process is that like, look, if we retain our earnings, I'm going to make more, I'm gonna make more on that money for our shareholders than if I returned it and they invested it elsewhere. But where the situation this is putting Berkshire in is that that may not be the case anymore, right? I mean, because it's getting so big and it, because it basically mimics the S&P 500 now, the S&P 500 in many cases may even be better. I, I, you know, I think there's an argument there. So what that would lead one to believe is that there could be a point here where Berkshire pays a dividend, where that is the rational thing, and Buffett was kind of like, it can't really kind of get around uh, the, the fact that like he's not going to be able to beat the S&P 500 the same extent he has in the past. Yeah. Um... I know he had something to say about buybacks, and I think that's where a lot of people's minds go to when they think about uh, extra capital for companies. What what did he have to say about buybacks? Yeah, right. And so exactly, that's a, that's really that's actually a great tie-in because there's two ways to return money, right? You can return it in dividends, or you can or you can return it in, in in buybacks by buying back stock. And Buffett has been pretty tough on buybacks in the past. Okay, so let me give a little bit more context on this buyback conversation, actually. So. Because of business confidence and consumer confidence and the, the the slow growth economy that we're stuck in, a lot of what a lot of business has been doing is they've been taking all their earnings and opposed to reinvesting a lot of those into business investments because they don't see the return on those. They've and they don't want to raise their dividend a whole bunch because then they're stuck at that rate forever more. They've been they've been using buybacks as kind of a pressure release valve. But the problem with that is that, as you know, we're on like this huge, we're in the midst, maybe at the end or somewhere in this huge bull market where stocks have gone way, way up. So these companies are spending all this money on buybacks and buying back their shares at these really high values. Well, the problem with doing that is that you buy it back at too high of a value, the company is actually destroying value on a, they're destroying value on a per share basis, right? Just like if, if you as an individual investor pays too much for a stock. Um, so Buffett has come out in the past and said that, look, Berkshire isn't going to do that. Berkshire would only buy back its stock if it trades for below 120% above its book value. Um, but in his most recent letter, he goes really he aggressively, he has a really aggressive conversation about the fact that a lot of companies, while buybacks aren't necessarily good or bad as a general rule, a lot of companies in the application of the buybacks are, are, are wasting a lot of money on, uh, of their shareholders. Yeah. Um, it's, it's definitely a really interesting conversation um, and something that people should look at with other companies um, when they're thinking about buying. Like, are, Is management responsible with buybacks? Because there is a point where Buffett will buy back shares of Berkshire Hathaway, but it's like when he thinks that Berkshire is being completely undervalued by the market and not just because we have all this extra money and we don't know what to do with it. Um, so one of the things I, I want you to do one thing for me before we get on to the next Buffett thing, which is um, pick out a quote that really stood out to you in this letter and and uh, tell tell me about it. Yeah. Oh my God. I'm so glad you asked me that. And you didn't. You didn't. We didn't prep for this ahead of time. But I have one for you, guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's your lucky day. It's your birthday. It's, it's oh, your thank birthday. you. It's a week and a half. <laughs> this, is what, this is what I've always wanted. <laughs> 
All right. So in the very okay. So in the conversation of the letter, okay, in the very 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 beginning of it, the first two paragraphs of Buffett's conversation. And when you think when you're a guy like Buffett, a, a lot of t- you, like he is so smart that he knows how to order his letters, right? So there is significance to where in the letter certain things fall, okay? And the closer to the beginning, they're probably pretty important, right? So he spends the first two paragraphs talking about this fact that like, look, just because they're getting so big, their their returns just aren't gonna like blow out of the market every year like they used to. But then in the third paragraph, after kind of teeing that up, he talks about the fact that, but what you're gonna see with Berkshire is that our returns are gonna be lumpy. There's going to be some years where we return, where we have just huge returns. And so it's in this context that this here, that he says this quote, every decade or so, dark clouds will fill the economic skies and they will briefly rain gold. When downpours of that sort occur, it's imperative that we rush outdoors carrying wash tubs, not teaspoons, and that we will do. So what he's basically saying is that, look, we have accumulated an enormous amount of cash, and I don't have it off the top of my head, but I mean like just I mean just tens and tens of billions of dollars worth of cash and, 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 uh, that they're waiting to deploy on, on investments. And basically what he's saying is that like at this point now they're just waiting for that opportunity. Yeah, um, which will maybe give them a little spike above the S&P 500. That's exactly right. <laughs> Um, but it also, but it also kind of t- speaks to where Buffett's brain is at in terms of what he is thinking about the market. I mean, like we know that the market has corrections regularly. Buffett is basically saying, like, look, I'm waiting for a, a very large correction. So, I mean, you can kind of work backwards from that. Yeah, which will be really interesting. Um, maybe, maybe some of these gains that we've seen, the Trump bump, as some people are calling it, might be might be washed away. Um, but that's also just the the nature of the market. Um, so the one last thing I wanted to touch on with Buffett before we move on to our next topic is, um, I don't know if you remember this, but back in 2008, Warren Buffett made this bet with some hedge fund managers, saying that he bet them that the S&P 500 would outperform the hedge funds over a 10-year period, and whoever won, so whoever's uh, a, a money-making device. Uh, made more money or went up in a, a greater percentage over the course of the ten years would pay a million dollars to a charity of their choice, um, and we are we are nearing the end of that. There's only a year left in that competition. Yeah, we have one year, and and what we were talking about for the show, right? I mean, it's like so. It, so just kind of recap. So yes, it's just Buff has basically said like, look, nine years ago, I bet a hedge fund manager that a selection of hedge funds that they choose cannot beat the S&P 500. And so now fast forward to today, so one hedge fund investor, one hedge fund uh, manager took him up on that offer, selected five fund of, hedge fund fund of funds, so that's a hedge fund that invests in other hedge funds. So it gives you even greater diversity, which would presumably give you a better chance of you know, either out you know, to, to beat the S&P 500, right? And so the best fund, the one, the best of the five funds that this manager selected, is up 62.8% since the since the bet was made. The S&P 500 is up by 85.4%. So it just goes to show, that, like, <laughs> unless those hedge funds really make, and that was like the best group by far. I mean, the the other ones are like 2.9%, 7. 7.5%, 8.7%, 28.3%. So <laughs> yeah. So it just goes to show, like, maybe. You're not getting, and he talks extensively about this in the letter. Maybe these investors who pay all this, you know, this two and twenty, and the rate structure for hedge funds, they pay a ton of money for these things. 
maybe there isn't as much value there as people people think. Yeah, and this is a big thing that Warren Buffett is about, and The Motley Fool to some extent too, which is that if you don't have time to closely monitor your investments, consider investing in the S&P 500. It'll probably get you a better rate of return over time for much cheaper than a hedge fund um, without the without the potential pitfalls of owning individual stocks. Um, but yeah, I bet those I bet those hedge fund managers are kept up at night by this bet. <laughs> yeah, but you know what you know what I love about this is that like Buffett is basically just telling people like, look, like you don't ha- complicated investing isn't necessarily the best investing. Which is to the Motley Fool, you know, we're a company that speaks to individual investors that don't have like all the money and sophistication to pour into like developing models and doing all these things. And what this shows is that like you don't need that to like compete. In the markets, you know, in a competitive way, and so I, I, it's 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 just a reassuring thing for investors, and it's something that I think investors really should really listen and take that advice. Yeah. Well, speaking of sleeping soundly, your mattress shouldn't keep you up at night, which is why I'm happy to say that this episode of Industry Focus is brought to you by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the cost. Casper is revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing that savings directly to the consumer. Casper's mattress is an obsessively engineered mattress at a very fair price. The Casper mattress is made of supportive memory foams for a sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Plus, its breathable design sleeps cool to help you regulate your temperature through the night. You can buy it easily online and completely risk-free. Casper offers free delivery and painless returns within a 100-day period, so you don't have to lie down in a showroom. You can save an additional $50 toward a mattress purchase by going to casper.com fool and entering the promo code fool. That's casper.com fool and promo code fool. Terms and conditions apply. So, on the back half of our show, <laughs> I don't know if you remember doing this, I don't know if our listeners remember this, um, we had a stock face-off a series of shows a couple weeks ago where um, industry-focused hosts and analysts talked about some stocks that they liked. And I agreed that at the end of it, I would buy stocks um, if I liked them. And if they, if, if, I had done a, if they had done a good job selling me on it, and, con- and then I did a good job convincing myself that I actually wanted to buy them. So, I wanted to talk a little bit about which stocks I actually ended up buying. Um, I will say that before I I decided to buy. I looked at all the fundamentals, and all of them looked very good on every company, which you might expect since industry-focused hosts and analysts were the people who had picked the companies. Um, so I'm gonna kind of just talk to you about some of the qualitative things that helped me make my choice. So as you remember, Maxfield, you and Jordan Wathen, you you actually pitched J.P. Morgan Chase, and Wathen pitched Moody's. Um, and I ended up picking J.P. Morgan Chase, and the reason is that. Basically, the reason comes down to is the way that both of these companies behaved during the financial crisis and the in the period leading up to the financial crisis. J.P. Morgan Chase did a great job of managing its risk, and Moody's was one of the reasons that the financial crisis happened. One could say, um, and that has made me not trust them very much in the long term. And I'm not really sure that they fixed the problems that caused them to mislabel um, certain securities. So, JP Morgan Chase was my winner there. And I felt like as a financial host, I had to own at least one bank, you know? Like I, I felt like I was as cheating listeners by not owning at least one bank. <laughs> yeah. Can, can let me just let, let me just say something uh, something really interesting I learned the other day about the the ratings agencies. So, uh-huh. er, earlier in the week, I was on the phone about um 
I was on the phone with a, a CEO of one of our really large banks, and he told me that the ratings agencies are his most, his single most important constituents. Interesting. That above shareholders, above the board of directors, above regulators, above customers, above analysts. And I thought like, wow, that is like such an interesting, that's such an interesting point. Sorry, that's just like a random thing, but I thought you'd find it interesting. Yeah, no, that, that is definitely very interesting. And who knows, maybe my opinion about Moody's will change eventually when I have more money to invest. But for now, I could only pick one, and J.P. Morgan's was my was was my choice. Um, and then in the American Outdoors brand versus AB InBev face-off, I ended up going with American Outdoor Brands, mostly because I thought that their umbrella business model was really interesting. Um, the fact that they were getting into more technical um, things that they could do. They they were buying these companies that had a lot of niche expertise. Uh, Versus and and they have a lot more room to grow versus the AB InBev of 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 beer, which is basically just this giant monolith of beer. Um, for healthcare, through a little bit of a curveball, I ended up buying both Gilead and Illumina because um, I think both of them have a lot of potential. Illumina, I really wish that I'd had one of their machines when I was doing my my master's work um i could have done so many very interesting things but alas i was a lowly grad student without access to one in a lab um and gilead again i think it has a lot of room to grow and i think it's it's a little undervalued at this point um 8.3 versus ge i went with ge because the energy fr- space frankly scares me and i understand what ge does i'm not still 100% sure what 8.3 does um, and then for Shopify versus Facebook, unfortunately, I couldn't buy either of them. Remember, if you will, that I mentioned that the Motley Fool has a great deal, has a great number of trading restrictions. We have trading restrictions on both Shopify and Facebook because we are using them for some unknown internal purpose, at least to me. Um, but for the record, I would have bought Shopify because I think that their story was the more compelling of the two, um, even if their fundamentals were perhaps not as compelling. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, that's that's what I ended up picking. Um, if you guys have any questions about why, go ahead and ask me. I don't know that I will be able to answer them satisfactorily to you. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed that week. I've gotten a lot of feedback saying that you did, and maybe we'll be able to do something like that again in the future. Um, Maxfield, thank you very much for joining us, and happy birthday again. Thank you very much. Always a pleasure, and and happy birthday in advance for you. Oh, thank you very much. Um, As usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Obviously, I have a great deal of interest in the stocks that I just mentioned. Definitely don't buy those based solely on what you've heard from me. That would make me feel very bad, especially because I checked my portfolio this morning and it was a lot of red. And that was a that's very sinking feeling that has not yet risen from my gut. Um, also, I have this book in the studio that I've actually been using to silence the clink of my cup um, as I put it down on the table. But it is uh, Buffett, The Making of an American Capitalist by Roger Lowenstein. Since we talked about Warren Buffett today, this is a great book. You should go ahead and buy it and not just use it to stop your mug from making noise when you set it down on the table. Um, contact us at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at mfindustryfocus. Uh, if you want to talk to us, I would love to, to hear you talk. Um, thank you very much to Austin Morgan. I missed you last week, Austin. I was having fun not here. Oh. <laughs> Well, I was hanging out in Nashville, and it was awesome. In that case, I I, Lucky dog. I 
I don't feel bad for you at all, and I don't miss you anymore. Um, but thanks for being today's producer, and thank you to y'all for joining us. Everyone have a great week. <laughs>